this is Karis Ryan and welcome to Teach Me in 20. Each week I'll release a new podcast where I get to speak with awesome people who have something new to teach me that I know nothing about. If, like me, you're naturally curious about everything, this could be the podcast for you. So come along for the ride. It'll only cost you 20 minutes. Hey guys, welcome to Teach Me in 20 with Karis Ryan. Today we are joined by Madalena Grupila. She is a clinical psychologist providing psychotherapy to adults grappling with numerous life issues and her particular area of interest is in the area of sexuality, having completed her doctoral thesis in women's sexual difficulties. Madalena, thanks for coming along. Pleasure. It's uh, awesome to have you here. It's a topic we don't often get to talk about, sex, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you use that word many times in a day. (laughs) (laughs) I do, yes. So, in layman's terms, how would you describe what you do as a clinical psychologist? Um, I think, I mean, a clinical psychologist obviously, um, you know, focuses on the area of mental health, uh, will look at a whole range of, um, you know, difficulties, um, and that can be, you know, a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, uh, some of the more uh, severe spectrum disorders, such as, for example, you know, um, bipolar, psychosis, all of that. But I, I tend to sort of uh, do, I think what happened or, and maybe should I just carry on? Go for yeah. it. Um, no, I Anything think, you say, everyone's going to be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. Um, no, I suppose in, in saying that, so I'm trained as a clinical psychologist, but as I did my doctorate in women's sexuality, that became an area of interest for me. Um, obviously, sexuality can't be divorced from any other aspect of psychological and emotional health. Um, and so I think the clinical psychology background gives me the capacity to be able to see uh, people within the context of their lives and whatever mental illness or difficulty they may have, mm-hmm. um, which can often have an impact on their sexuality or vice versa. Okay. Yeah. So I read up as well, your sort of back, your treatment is attachment therapy and object therapy. Object relations. Object relations. So basically I tried to dumb it down and I read it's people's past influences their relationships and their sexual relationships. Yes. So what's an example of someone's past having an impact as an adult? Well, I suppose, you know, um, I think currently, of course, there's a there's a huge focus on childhood sexual abuse and, and the sort of um, experiences that people go through. That often can have a profound impact on somebody's idea of who they are as a sexual being, um, how they relate to a sexual relationship or a sexual interaction, yeah. um, you know, issues around... Um, their own identity in adolescence, uh, issues around who they're attracted to. Um, You know, individuals are so diverse that I think there's there's a whole range of of things that can impact sexuality, you know. Um, Childbirth, too much work, stress, uh, illness, uh, loss, grief, all of that can have an impact on sexuality. In fact, I think one of the biggest... Um, misconceptions is the idea that you sort of, you know, you travel along your life, you know, you go along and this happens and there's loss, whatever, and you're going to remain always the same sexual person. Well, you know, I think that that's, that's, there's a myth around uh, sexuality. It's always impacted. Which I don't think people sort of think about 
how their emotions are affecting them, not only with people but with their yeah own sexual yes life. I guess would you say lifestyle or relationship with themselves? Yes, I, I think because I think maybe sex has been so taboo for so long. It's been and it's imbued with you know values and norms and gender roles and all of that. I, I suppose that many people have an erroneous expectation that, you know, that they might have just been fired or, you know, they've just lost somebody, but they're still going to be fine sexually. You know, their, their desire is not going to be impacted or, you know, it's okay. I've just lost my job, but oh, it's okay. I can have sex. <laughs> you know, it is a myth, I think. And I, I find that a lot of people that I work with um, that will come in will um, have that sort of myth around sex, yep. that it won't be impacted. So what's a common, probably, the, I mean, and this could be very broad, but say a couple comes in, um, what's the probably the most common, I want to say problem, but mm. I mean, it's just a difficulty, I yeah. guess, as well, that you see over your years of work? I'd say at the moment, yeah, I'd say that uh, the two most common ones, I think, is low desire, low sexual desire. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that there's a media hype and there was a lot of, um, and that's a different topic of research uh, (laughs) debate, but uh, around women having low sexual desire, I actually tend to see both men and women with low sexual desire. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, is it, I mean, and it's gender stereotyping here. Hugely. I'm just sort of more wanting to put out the question, is it men more coming to you with a problem unhappy with the sexual relationship or is it the female? I think it depends. It depends on the context. Um, so with, within the two sort of, uh, you know, there's there's many um, broad presentations, but let's call it the two difficulties that I might see more of, low sexual desire and also uh, desire discrepancy or, or discrepancies in, in how much people want sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, uh, that's where there seems to be a little bit of a, a an argument between couples. Now, that could be both... Uh, uh, male or female. Now, I'm I'm just talking now about heterosexual yep. relationships, and um, and I probably will focus a little bit more on heterosexual now as I talk to you. But the same applies in other um, you know sexual orientate yeah. uh, orientations. Um, so, but it is low sexual desire and desire discrepancies. Would it be more male and or female? Mm, not that I'm aware of. Okay. I think there's a hype. Mm. Uh, around that, there's a huge media hype and a gender stereotype, but I don't know that I would say that one is more than the other. Yeah. And if it is, it's because we've had a model of sexuality that's been, in a way, socially constructed that men should desire sex more often than women, so when, and that yeah. becomes a difficulty. And that goes back to we've been brought up thinking a certain way and that impacts yes. our adult relationships. Yes, yes. I mean, we just touched on it then... So I've got a few gay friends and they, you know, often so females like, oh, it'd just be so much easier dating a guy. Um, is, do you see, obviously you deal with same-sex couple yes. relationships? Yes. I mean, what are the varying, uh, pro- like, what are the differences in problems that, for them? Or is it very much similar? I yeah. think it's very much similar. Yeah. Uh, you see, I suppose that it depends. If one is going to assess problems based just on behaviour, how is it how we have sex, in what manner, and in behaviour, then there may be differences along the way. 
But I don't see sexual problems as divorced from any other part of who we are. No I mean, one's immune then. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't think so because I think that, you know, we are, we are embodied creatures. We are sexual. We are. And so, again, um, there's no such thing as your penis doing one thing and your vulva the other and, and you somewhere else. I, I mean, you know, it's everything is part of who we are. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, I mean, some people may have a different opinion. I, I find that problems and difficulties are very much the same and related. Yeah. yeah. What's probably one reoccurring piece of advice you find yourself giving to couples? Um, I, I think probably the most common one will would be around the idea that, um, you know, the sexual experience, people's sexual experience, their sexual relationship, their, um, you know, their whatever sexual interaction is actually unique. And we've been socialized, I think, and we still are, although, you know, things are changing a little bit, but we're still very much socialized within a model of how we should be doing sex or how we should be sexually. And this model has historically been very male-dominated. One of the things that I find that I work with a lot of both males and females is the idea of a penile-vaginal model of sex. In other words, you know, you have to have penis and vagina sex as the top of the hierarchy of sex. Okay. And all other behaviors are not known as sex. You know, right. they all foreplay or they fiddling around or, you know, touchy-touchy, whatever it might be. And, and that's, I think, probably one of the biggest problems for couples because, or for individuals that I see. Um, because sexual interactions and sexual behavior, I think, should follow a more horizontal level. You know, you don't have to have penile vaginal penetration or whatever it might be. I'm talking about penetration yep. of whatever sort. There's so much more that one could can do to be sexual. And so we've got a very restricted model, which I think is very male-based. So you're um, basically saying it all should be counted and all oh, should yes. be sort of val- validated as still contact and contributing to a healthy relationship. Oh, absolutely. And I think that we know, for example, historically, that for women, for example, um, there tends to be a lot more pleasure involved uh, with, you know, um, clitoral stimulation uh, per se without penetration than, then, you know, that... that um, and, and that isn't, I mean, it's more talked about now or it's more discussed, but there's still this idea that I should be having sort of penile vaginal penetration okay. as, you know, the top of the, what do you call it? The Pyramid? Hierarchy? Yeah, the hi- yep. or, or the cherry. That's what I want to say. Hierarchy of sex, we can call it that. <laughs> I think we've just <laughs> come up cherry, with a new doctorate. Yeah, yeah. Or the <laughs> cherry on the cake or That's top it, or whatever it is. on the yeah. Sunday. Yeah. I guess, so I asked around a lot in preparation mm-hmm. for this interview and I did a bit of research and... A common th- occurring thing seems to be the norm of what, what is it normal to do this, et cetera, yes. and insert any, you know, question here. Yes. And there's things where, oh, girls, I, I can't come, uh, I can only orgasm out, not through, as you yes. say, penetration, but other stuff. Yes. Or guys don't want this act performed on them. And is it normal? And I guess is half your job basically explaining to people there's no norm. Yes. There is yes. no normal sexual relationship. Yes. yes. That's a very important observation. I think a really important one. Um, it is half of my job is to try and, I suppose, normalise the idea that 
the way you're having sex, as long as it's consensual mm-hmm. and, you know, um, the way you're having it doesn't matter. And, and that's, I think, what comes down to the sort of a model, the construction of how we should be doing sex uh, and what behaviours should be part of sex as, as such. So, you know, if you... And I think also what you look like. I think that's an, another uh, big thing along the, the the gender lines. You know, what what does my what do my genitals look like? Am I normal in that way? Right. Um, that also taps into the idea of being normal, and that's a very very I think a huge concern in our society, particularly when we're doing sex, because I think it's a very vulnerable state to be in to, you know, undress, mm. be naked. For many people, it's 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 very. Um, it feels very vulnerable, that sort of experience. Um, and there's a lot of expectations around how we are. You know, am I good at sex? Well, <laughs> you know. Let your partner be the judge. Yeah, <laughs> if exactly. they're happy, I mean. And number one, yes. And number two, I mean, it's, you know, it's an exploration. It's, I think Esther Perel, she's a, a couples therapist. Uh, she talks about the, the fact that when you have sex, it's a place you go to. It's, it's not really... It's not so much about what you do, but it's a place you go to in your mind and body um, that determines the experience, mm-hmm. you know. Sticking with the couple theme at the moment, I did want to also talk about the individual aspect. And again, doing a bit of research, and a lot of women after childbirth, um, they lose a, a, lot, a lot of sexual, sexual drive, they mm. find their husband repulsive. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's not really talked about. No. And is that something you see a lot of? And is there a lot of shame from women in that? Yes. I, I think there's, um, yes, I think there's shame. I think that we, you know, we, we're uh, living in a very objectifying uh, society. Women have always sort of been objects mm. to, to be looked at. I think the other thing I think that um, becomes quite tricky for women is that I suppose those same pleasure points of of women's bodies, uh, breasts, uh, you know, genitals, vulva, uh, vagina, uh, all of those, and, and so many more, those become in a way, uh, they perform a different role when it comes to having a child. So, you know, you can have a woman who has a baby suckling on her, on her breasts in the morning and a husband who wants to suckle at night in part of... Part of now, that boundary to traverse that I think is incredibly difficult. Okay. Um, and so I think there's a lot of that, that that I think there's a lot written, a lot more written about that nowadays. But I suppose that there's an expectation for women to be very flexible in how they perform those roles. And there, there has to be, I think, uh, women need to be able to process certain experiences uh, in order to be able to, you know, navigate their role and then find their desire again or whatever. You know, yeah. you know desires, um, it's not something that you have and then you don't have. Mm. I mean, it's, it's fluid constantly, you yeah. know. Um, well, in that situation though as well, I mean, you have, here's a man who obviously just wants to be with his wife or partner and they're sort of, they could maybe be getting the retaliation on it. You sort of feel for both sides in mm. that this is a man who just wants to be with his wife. And yes. how does a guy from that angle deal with something like that? Look, I think it's a really good question. I, I think, I mean, I, I see that potentially one of the problems is that um, I think we still, from this model that I talk about in sexuality, is that there's more focus, I think, in our cultural upbringing of males that um, it doesn't allow or that 
still looks at masculinity as being very performance-based, as okay. very, being very sexually oriented, as being, you know, if she's not having sex with me, does it mean she loves the baby more than me? And what must I do? I think that if we had to, you know, allow our males <laughs> from childhood and to certainly have more flexibility in the way that they relate mm -hmm. to intimate partners, be it male or female or, you know, um, I think that that will allow them uh, different avenues to be able to, to experience their relationship with their partner. I was, yeah, yeah, I mean, I was going to ask as well, do you think there needs to be more done from an earlier age yes. in terms of education? Yes. Um, I mean, I went through Catholic schooling and sex ed is very limited in what they teach you yes. based on the religion. But even not even from a sexual education perspective, more just as a personal, you know, for someone trying to figure out their sexual orientation, do you think there needs to be done, whether that's in schools or programs outside of school, yes. for people to learn? I think so. I mean, I think, and I think that there's lots of people doing wonderful stuff. Um, I think that one of the things that I realised when I sort of did my um, research is, it seemed to me that one of the things, and maybe, it, maybe this is my, maybe I'm based on, basing it on my experience and mm -hmm. not on anybody else's, but the idea that a lot of women, uh, because women are tend to be the primary um, socialisers in the home. There's still a lot of um, shame around women's sexuality. And then women tend to develop, um, certainly who I've spoken to, they tend to become more comfortable with their sexuality as the years progress. One of the problems is, though, when they're socializing their children, they may still be at a time in their lives where they're still not that comfortable. Right. And it feels to me that we, we absorb or what we call internalize a lot of these um, restrictions and ideas about sexuality um, through our parents in a very, I think, you know, in unconscious ways. Um, and so women are, th women, I'm not saying women per se, but men as well, but children are still absorbing a lot of their parents' hang-ups around sexuality. So it's not only, I think, the school system, um, but I think sometimes, in a, you know, not, not intentionally at all, but we absorb the stuff um, and children are, you know, do that very young. Yeah. So I think all that discomfort with sex, that uh, confusion about sex, those things that I think some of, a lot of people, you know, most of us go through as we're yeah. experimenting or finding, trying to find ourselves sexually, some of that can, can maybe be, um, you know, I suppose children pick up on it. Yeah. Yeah. Learned, I guess, learned behaviour or yeah. learned sort of yeah, I think, interaction with yes, opposite sex. I, I think certainly more, inter, you know, internalised, the same way that we internalise parents, um, you know, the ideas about discipline or, you know, cleanliness or whatever. Yeah. That seems to happen. I wanted to ask as well, what is something in terms of a couple's or even an individual, what's something that stumped you? So in a session you've just gone, wow, school, just none amount of study prepared me for this. You know, it's interesting. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I can... I, don't, I think one of the things that... Um, I, don't, I don't know that I can answer that with, with um, something that stumped me. Uh, or surprised or... Um, I think I'm just more surprised with... with um, I think more... 
more of the rigidity of what people hold on to in, tem- tens of their, in terms of their gender norms. Okay. Um, I'm more surprised by that. I think, then, I think once you begin to see sex and sexual desire along a continuum, then whatever people do, and again, of course there's behaviours that are like seriously maybe weird. Like um, fetishes or... Yeah, and yeah. you know... There's a number of them that I think we we still think are weird in a society, but you know historically, it could be that in a hundred years we don't. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there's such a, a variety. Um, so I don't know if I can answer that. I'm more, I think, surprised by how rigid we hold on to our expectations, assumptions, um, the things that we feel quite secure in. Yeah. Um, because there is there's still very much a there's, there's still a lot of anxiety around sex mm-hmm. and what it means and who I am as a sexual being. Um, how am I going to be experienced? How am I going to be valued, judged, all of that? I'm more surprised by that, I think, than an actual behavior. Yeah. You know, we all find, you know, it's like it's like our, our taste in, in food, you know. Yeah. Some people is, have weird compared to what I think. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know. So with the whole idea of therapy as well, often people think, oh, well, if you're going to, you know, couples counselling or something, that's the last straw. I wanted to ask, is it or can you go to therapy as more of a cathartic thing and just to talk about your relationship and get things off the table that you may not be able to do in your own house? Oh, absolutely. I think think that's spot on. I think there's a... You know, there's a range of things. I, I think, again, it's, it's maybe just a misperception that you go to therapy because you've got serious problems. I think there's a whole range of things you can do. Uh, yes, some people sometimes need help with a voice. You know, they mm-hmm. want to be able to voice some of their opinions. They need a bit of support. Sometimes there's relationships that are breaking down that actually need guidance on how to break down. Um, so how to, like, they need a breakdown and then sort of rebuild? No, or it, just... it could be that people are ending, okay. you know, that they come to counselling and some of the work is around assisting them in, you know, uh, dissolving their relationship or, you know, in, in a way that's maybe healthier, more amicable. Um, Can yeah. you tell yeah. a relationship from the beginning that, okay, this is uh, helping them resolve or it's helping them de- depart from each other? Uh it depends. You know, sometimes I might work with, and I have had experiences where I might work with some couples for a few sessions and, it, you know, they, they come to the realisation that either one, one party isn't really committed to stay or, and that can come out. Sometimes I might work with them for much longer, a year or whatever, and, and then they come to that or, yeah. So Is there anyone you just haven't been able to help? Like... In comparison, say, people come and try and learn tennis. And, you know, there's students where you can tell them to change, change a stroke, you need to do this, and they just don't want to listen and you can't get through to them. Are there any examples of that where you've just gone, well, I can't help you then if, you you know, you're not willing to change this behaviour or listen to your partner? You know, that's a very – I suppose that's that's a really tricky question and and, um, I don't know – in my experience, I think – most people would like to and want to change. I think the barriers to change are many. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, I want to bring in the word anxiety. I think there's a lot of anxiety around how we change and if we can change. And I think people are scared of change. Yeah, sure. So as much as they want to change, sometimes, um, sometimes the change feels too hard. Sometimes it feels too dangerous at some level or, you know, too... 
I don't know. Of course, there's been people that I can't help or people that haven't been helped, you know, um, for I think for a, such a, a number of, of, of reasons. But I do think that people try very hard. Um, and they usually, in my experience, they usually come in with wanting to change. Mm -hmm. But it's a very difficult thing, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. Which is why I suppose that in psychology, the idea of telling people what to do is useless. It's not going to get you anywhere in the sense that people know what to do. I mean, you know, they don't need a psychologist for that. They need a psychologist, I suppose, or somebody to support them in their experience of how they're going to about bringing change or changing their relationship or their attitude or whatever it might be. Yeah. So you're sort of trying to bring out their own realisation of what yes, needs to be done? Absolutely. Yeah, than yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think that I think the most important thing is to be able to – I tend to work with people more long-term because I come from a, a you know, um, a way of thinking where the relationship is important. So we develop a relationship, um, you know, with clients and, and we hope that within this environment that um, that's going to make it more conducive for change, whatever variables, you know, yeah. are there. Just as well in terms of individuals that may come to you, and you mentioned specialising in women's – sexual difficulties say a woman woman has come to you and she's in an abusive relationship yes do you have to report that or is it all confidential in your sessions well it, it you know it will depend on the sort of context i mean that's a very very that is a very tricky um area mm -hmm. um i don't tend to if i'm seeing the woman on her own then i will let the woman guide me Yep. Uh, in where she's at. I mean, the number one thing in anybody who's in an abusive relationship is going to be safety. Yep. So that's going to be my first concern. Um, I suppose that, you know, we've got rules and regulations that we need to practice within. But I think that really what's important is for us to listen to what the client brings in. I don't know that it would be... Um, I would... You know, I would never go and report something without, yeah, course, you know, you yeah. know, without the clients. I mean, that's obviously touches our confidentiality. So I think the work is tricky around that. Um, and I might work with, uh, I might work, depending on the situation, there's so many different situations when it comes to abusive relationships. But I, I might work with some organizations for added support, extra support, a more multidisciplinary approach yeah. in those circumstances. I wanted know. to ask as well, and I know you're trained in this, but... How, especially as a female, if you hear something like that, how do you keep your own personal bias out yes. of a situation? Even if you saw a couple come in and you can just see, it doesn't even have to be the female being sort of, I guess, antagonised, even if a male, how do you, I guess it's just human as well, you just feel for people. Yes. How do you not let it affect you and how do you keep your personal bias out of yes. yeah, your work? Well, I suppose, you know, it's one of the things that I'm always saying to my students. I, I don't believe that we can be non-judgmental. Okay. I mean, I, th I think we, well, at least I th I'm judgmental. I, mean, I, mean, <laughs> I am. <laughs> I, I don't know how you can not be I mean, like I'm that. trying my best. <laughs> yes, and we, do, and we do try. Um, I don't know that, I don't know that, that one, that the idea is to be not, you know, to not have a bias. Yeah. I think it's important, and I suppose, again, it's the way that we do therapy, the school of therapy that we come from. Um, you need to put things into place so that whatever's being evoked in you at that minute, because mm -hmm. um, often it's about both what's being evoked there, but what's, what's it, you know, what's going on for me 
yep. as well. I've got my own history, whatever. Yep. So I need to take that to a place. And usually it will be through my supervision. So I have, you know, I say to my students, you cannot do this work because you're in, you're interacting with, with people at very, very vulnerable levels, very intimate levels. Um, I think it's important that you always have your own relationships, your supervisory relationships, colleagues, peer supervision, um, where you go to and you say, hey, this is what happened. I felt pulled into this one or I felt more pulled mm -hmm. by her or, you know, by him or whatever the case might be. Yeah. Yeah. When as well, uh, Madalena says her students, she also lectures um, at high level, uh, some very esteemed universities in Perth. So um, she's also got that hat she wears as well. I wanted to ask as well, Mads, what does a healthy sexual relationship look like to you? Hmm. And that's yeah. probably a tough question. <laughs> Good question. A healthy sexual relationship. Well, I think, um, I think where people make allowances for the fact that you have really good sex, you have sort of arbitrary sex, sometimes it's downright yucky sex. <laughs> Maybe not yucky, but not so good. Um, We've all been there. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's really... I think a healthy sexual relationship is where um, partners are able to have the freedom to say yes and have the freedom to say no. Okay. Okay, that's really important. Uh, to be able to say no without the expectations, are they gonna, is my partner going to feel rejected, feel that I don't love them, et cetera, et cetera, and in turn, you know, that they are able to, to sort of feel that as well. You know, to be able to reach out for sex, um, to understand that sex is part and parcel of the relationship. It comes, sometimes there's a focus on it, sometimes there isn't. Um, to have really realistic ideas. You know, if you haven't slept for 18 hours and you're really tired and you're overworked, I don't know that the first thing you want is to have sex when you go to bed mm. at midnight. So those sort of expectations. Um, yeah, I suppose, yes. Um, and to be able to to have... Uh, again, a space, I come to this idea of a space, a space where you can joke sometimes, a space which is intense sometimes, a space which is, you know, creative, whatever it is. I think that's healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Know? And I think it's that back to that point of the expectation versus reality and making sure you're both on the same page and yes. maybe sort of dumbing down the expectations and also your idea of the perfect reality. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I don't think that there's some, the, sex is actually quite, if you think about it, quite cumbersome. You know, it's, we get into weird positions. It's got, you know, that it's, there's some weird things about sex. There's mm -hmm. smells and noises and, you know, feelings and, and all of that. So I think also, you know, again, I talk about the freedom to be able to, you know, keep it in flow, not to, I don't feel I'm being articulate, but um, I suppose to just have less expectations about what it's supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know. That yeah, and I think you articulated it. Sex is just—it's not a topic discussed a lot, and I think if we can, especially with younger people, if we can just put it out there as less as a ugh, taboo subject and more just transparent and more better education. I think yes. you especially would see less individuals grappling with issues and leading that into their adult relationships as well. Yeah, I, I suppose one thing I haven't said, and, and I think, again, something that, that I think is important about sex is that whilst there's been so much focus on sex as a behaviour and what we do, 
there's really been less focus on the meaning-making around sex. What does sex mean to people? Okay. I think that's a really important question to think about because a behavior is a behavior, but meaning-making, that's what our life is about, whether it be sex or jobs or children or, you know, we, we need to find meaning in our lives. And, and, and sex, we need to know what the meaning is for us. I wanted to ask with that meaning as well, do you ever have couples that uh, abstain and did sex, no sex before marriage? Um, oh, yes. And then they've come to you and basically are like, well, it wasn't what I was expecting. Yes. Do you, and not to put you on the spot, but do you think sex should be encountered before they commit a lifelong commitment? Well, that's a, that's a moral question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can't. I guess I'm, I'm more like, do we test the wheels before we buy the car? <laughs> and Again. Or is it, I guess that's a religious thing as well where yes. I just, yeah, it's um, the things that it's, as you said, it's sex, it just encompasses a relationship. But if people have sort of waited, they have this massive expectation. And the reality, it, the first time, sure, like, <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's another thing I wanted to ask. Just. Do you yeah. see a lot of couples that have abstained? I don't see a lot, okay. but I certainly, I certainly have seen. Yeah. Um, yes, and I think there is expectations. Um, one can argue maybe more than others, but, you know, I, I, I don't know because I think that all of us has, have expectations as well about an ideal love, mm. you know. Um, it's an ideal. Whether you abstain or not, all of us come into relationships, I think, with ideals. And every ideal is going to somehow be disappointing, you know, <laughs> because it's an ideal yeah. and we're human and we've got flaws. And so I don't, I mean, I think that is, you know, that is to do with people's morals. And I, I think rather uh, I need to listen to what they're bringing in and I need to listen to where it is that they're having difficulty, what it is that they're having difficulty in accepting uh, around the certain way of having sex or the frequency or, you know, what. Whatever, what it, yep. yeah. I, so. I think you just answered. I was going to say, if you could tell everyone in the world one thing about sex, what would it be? Gosh. Oh, um, I think it would just be around that sex is as variable as, as each individual. You know, we are uniquely uh, sexually different yep. from one individual to the next. And that whatever, you know, whatever experience or desire, um, it's our own. I think it's important that we learn to, you know, um, accept it as part of who we are. Uh, but it is uniquely our own and, and there's no such thing as real sex or perfect sex or ideal sex or... Yeah. It's what we... Contrary to what the movies make out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. That's, All those yes. heartthrobs ruining with our, messing with our brains growing up. Yes, that sort of, um, uh, you know, sex made in heaven when both of you orgasm and the drums are beating. Yeah. And, you know. Or guys when they watch porn and it's just like, this isn't how it always is. Like, this yes. is not a typical female. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Madalena, thank you so much for sharing Pleasure. with us today. It's, yeah, as I said, it's not a topic... Uh, discussed a lot and this is all about what this podcast is and just learning and I ho I'm sure you've ta taught everyone something here today. Ah, oh, I hope so. Thank you, Karis. No it's right. been great. See you, you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Teach Me in 20. If you did and if you even just learned one thing, make sure you subscribe so each week you can learn something new with me. Bye.